almost out of time. The others had halted behind him. He could hear their heavy breathing. There was a taste of ash in his mouth. Are we lost, pretty boy? Korak's mocking voice again. He made the mistake of rising to the bait. I'm looking for a rock. This time they did not even try to hide their laughter. I know it's here somewhere. I marked it with chalk. More laughter. And at that he wheeled on them, the squat and broad-shouldered Korax, Becco, the long-nose, who was a plasterer, the chubby one, Musa, whose skill was laying bricks, and the two slaves, Polites and Corvinus. Laugh, good, but I promise you this. Either we find it before dawn, or we shall all be back here tomorrow night. Silence. Then Korax spat and took a half-step forward, and the engineer braced himself for a fight. They had been building up to this for three days now, ever since he had arrived in Mycenaeum. Not an hour had passed without Korax trying to undermine him in front of the men. And if we fight, thought the engineer, he will win. It's five against one, and they will throw my body over the cliff and say I slipped into the darkness. But how will that go down in Rome, if a second Aquarius of the Aqua Augusta is lost in less than a fortnight? For a long instant they faced one another, no more than a pace between them, so close that the engineer could smell the stale wine on the older man's breath. But then one of the others, it was Becco, gave an excited shout and pointed. Just visible behind Korak's shoulder was a rock marked neatly in its center by a thick white cross. Attilius was the engineer's name, Marcus Attilius Primus to lay it out in full, but playing Attilius would have satisfied him. What name was more honorable in the history of his profession than that of the gens Attilia, aqueduct engineers for four generations? Now he, at twenty-seven, had been sent south to Campania and given command of the Aqua Augusta, a dynasty built on water. He squinted into the darkness. Oh, but she was a mighty piece of work, the Augusta, one of the greatest feats of engineering ever accomplished. Somewhere far out there on the opposite side of the bay, high in the pine-forested mountains of the Apenninus, the aqueduct captured the springs of Serenus and bore the water westward, channeled it along sinuous underground passages, carried it over ravines on top of tiered arcades, forced it across valleys through massive siphons, all the way down to the plains of Campania, then around the far side of Mount Vesuvius, then south to the coast of Neapolis, and finally, along the spine of the Mycenaean Peninsula, to the dusty naval town, a distance of some sixty miles, with a mean drop along her entire length of just two inches every one hundred yards. She was the longest aqueduct in the world, longer even than the great aqueducts of Rome, and far more complex. For whereas her sisters in the north fed one city only, the Augusta's serpentine conduit, the Matrix, as they called it, the mother line, suckled no fewer than nine towns around the Bay of Neapolis. Pompeii first, at the end of a long spur, then Nola, Acerai, Atella, Neapolis, Putioli, Cumai, Baiae, and finally Mycenaeum. And this was the problem, in the engineer's opinion. She had to do too much. Rome, after all, had more than half a dozen aqueducts. If one failed, the others could make up the deficit. 
But there was no reserve supply down here, especially not in this drought, now dragging into its third month. Even the Augusta was showing signs of exhaustion, the level of her enormous reservoir dropping hourly. And it was this that had brought him out onto the hillside in the time before dawn, when he ought to have been in bed. From the leather pouch on his belt, Attilius withdrew a small block of polished cedar, with a chin rest carved into one side of it. The grain of the wood had been rubbed smooth and bright by the skin of his ancestors. His great-grandfather was said to have been given it as a talisman by Vitruvius, architect to the divine Augustus, and the old man had maintained that the spirit of Neptune, god of water, lived within it. Attilius had no time for gods. He placed his faith instead in stones and water, and in the daily miracle that came from mixing two parts of slaked lime to five parts of putiolanum, the local red sand, conjuring up a substance that would set underwater with a consistency harder than rock. But still, it was a fool who denied the existence of luck. He would try anything once. He had left his rolls of Vitruvius behind in Rome, not that it mattered. They had been hammered into him since childhood as other boys learnt their Virgil. He could still recite entire passages by heart. He remembered one now. These are the growing things to be found which are signs of water. Slender rushes, wild willow, alder, chaste berry, ivy, which cannot occur on their own without moisture. Corax over there, ordered Tilius. Corvinus, there. Becco, take the pole and mark the place I tell you. You two, keep your eyes open. Corax gave him a look as he passed. Later, said Attilius. The overseer stank of resentment almost as strongly as he reeked of wine, but there would be time enough to settle their quarrel when they got back to Mycenaeum, for now they would have to hurry. A grey gauze had filtered out the stars. The moon had dipped. Fifteen miles to the east, at the midpoint of the bay, the forested pyramid of Mount Vesuvius was becoming visible. The sun would rise behind it. He thought again of the words of Vitruvius. This is how to test for water. Lie face down before sunrise in the places where the search is to be made, and with your chin set on the ground and propped, survey these regions. In this way the line of sight will not wander higher than it should because the chin will be motionless. Attilius knelt on the singed grass, leant forward, and arranged the block in line with the chalk cross fifty paces distant. Then he set his chin on the rest and spread his arms. Particles of ash wafted into his face as he stretched out. No dew. Seventy-eight days without rain. The world was burning up. Away to his right, Vesuvius darkened, and light shot from the edge of it. A shaft of heat struck Attilius' cheek. Still he was remembering. In those places where moisture can be seen curling and rising into the air, dig on the spot, because this sign cannot occur in a dry location. You saw it quickly, his father used to tell him, or you did not see it at all. He tried to scan the ground rapidly and methodically, shifting his gaze from one section of the land to the next, but it all seemed to run together, parched browns and greys and streaks of reddish earth, already beginning to waver in the sun. His vision blurred. He raised himself on his elbows and wiped each eye with a forefinger and settled his chin again. There! 
as thin as a fishing line it was, not curling or rising as Vitruvius promised, but snagging close to the ground as if a hook were caught on a rock and someone were jerking it. It zigzagged toward him and vanished. He yelled and pointed, There! Becco! There! And the plasterer lumbered toward the spot. Back! Yes, there! Mark it! Attilius was triumphant. You saw it? You must have seen it! They stared at him blankly. It was curious. Did you notice? It rose like this. He made a series of horizontal chops at the air with the flat of his hand. Like steam coming off a cauldron that's being shaken. Korak shook his head. Your eyes are playing tricks on you, pretty boy. There's no spring up here, I told you. I've known these hills for twenty years. And I'm telling you, I saw it. Smoke, Korak stamped his foot on the dry earth. I know smoke. I know vapor. This was vapor. Attilius dropped to his knees and patted the dry red earth. Then he started digging with his bare hands, working his fingers under the rocks and tossing them aside. Something had emerged from here. He was sure of it. Why had the ivy come back to life so quickly if there was no spring? He said, without turning round, Fetch the tools. They dug all morning. Attilius, an old straw hat pulled low over his face, worked hardest of all, his palms blistered. His tunic stuck to him like a second skin, but he would not show weakness in front of the men. Even Korak shut up after a while. The crater they eventually excavated was twice as deep as a man's height and broad enough for two of them to work in. And there was a spring there, right enough, but it retreated whenever they came close. Only at the tenth hour, when the sun had passed its zenith, did Attilius at last acknowledge defeat. He watched a final stain of water dwindle and evaporate, then flung his axe over the lip of the pit and hauled himself after it. Korak sat on a rock and watched him. He said, You'll boil your brains in this heat. He uncorked his water skin and tipped a little into his hands, splashed it onto his face and the back of his neck, then drank. Korak hawked and spat. He tilted his broad chin toward the hole. What do we do with this? Attilius glanced at it, an ugly gash in the hillside, great mounds of earth heaped all around it. His monument, his folly. We'll leave it as it is, he said. Have it covered with planks. When it rains, the spring will rise, you'll see. When it rains, we won't need a spring. He collected his tools and set off without waiting for the others. He had to watch where he put his feet. Each step sent a scattering of lizards rustling away into the dry undergrowth. It's more Africa than Italy, he thought. And when he reached the coastal path, Mycenaeum appeared beneath him. The headquarters of the Western Imperial Fleet was a triumph of man over nature, for by rights no town should exist here. There was no river to support her, few wells or springs— Yet the divine Augustus had decreed that the empire needed a port from which to control the Mediterranean, and here she was, the embodiment of Roman power. The glittering silver disks of her inner and outer harbors, the golden beaks and fantail sterns of fifty warships glinting in the late afternoon sun, the dusty brown parade ground of the military school, the red-tiled roofs and the whitewashed walls of the civilian town rising above the spiky forest of masts in the shipyard. Ten thousand sailors and another ten thousand citizens were crammed into a narrow strip of land with no fresh water to speak of. Only the aqueduct had made Mycenaeum possible.
He thought again of the curious motion of the vapor, and the way the spring had seemed to run back into the rock. He shook his head, blinking his eyes to clear them of sweat, and resumed his weary trudge down to the town. At the Villa Hortensia, the great coastal residence on the northern outskirts of Mycenaeum, they were preparing to put a slave to death. They were going to feed him to the eels. The new owner of the Villa Hortensia, the millionaire Numerius Popidius Ampliatus, had heard the story as a boy of how the Augustan aristocrat Vedius Pollio would hurl clumsy servants into his eel pond as a punishment for breaking dishes and he would often refer to it admiringly as the perfect illustration of what it was to have power. Power and imagination and wit and a certain style. So when, many years later, Ampliatus too came to possess a fishery, and when one of his slaves also destroyed something of rare value, the precedent naturally came back into his mind. Ampliatus had been born a slave himself. This was how he thought an aristocrat ought to behave. The poor fellow was duly stripped to his loincloth, had his hands tied behind his back, and was marched down to the edge of the sea. A knife was run down both of his calves to draw an attractive amount of blood. It was late afternoon, very hot. The eels had their own large pen reached by a narrow concrete gangway extending out into the bay. These eels were mores, notorious for their aggression, their bodies as long as a man's and as wide as a human trunk, with flat heads, wide snouts, and razor teeth. The mores were a particular terror to this slave, because Ampliatus savored the irony. It had long been his responsibility to feed them, and he was shouting and struggling even before he was forced onto the gangway. Despite the sweltering heat, Ampliatus himself promenaded down from the villa to watch, attended by his teenage son, Calcinus, together with his household steward, Scotarius, a few of his business clients who had followed him from Pompeii and had been hanging around since dawn in the hope of dinner, and a crowd of about a hundred of his other male slaves who he had decided would profit by witnessing the spectacle. His wife and daughter he had ordered to remain indoors. This was not a sight for women. A large chair was set up for him, with smaller ones for his guests. All manner of fish were kept at vast expense along the shoreline of the house, sea bass with their woolly white flesh, gray mullet which required high walls around their pond to prevent them leaping to freedom, flatfish and parrotfish and gilt heads, lampreys and